Welcome to Grace Church of Philly. I'm uh, delighted that you can join us both physically and those of you that are watching from many places around the world, welcome to Grace Church of Philly. This is the fourth of a series of messages from James chapter one. As we think about having a joyful faith in God's providence, I believe next week I will conclude the series and then Steve Davis will preach the following week. But James chapter one, verses one through 12, encourage us not simply to have faith, but to have a faith that results in joy in the midst of the difficult times of life. I remind you that James is interested in how a genuine faith works out into everyday living. How does faith work out in the midst of the trials of life? And we have been through trials over the past couple of months and that maybe uh, are not done with them yet. And if it's not COVID-19, then it's something else because this is the broken, fallen world that we live in. But there's one thing that does not change, and that is our God who is in control of all things. And faith in this God who does not change is what sustains us in the midst of the trials of life. We've looked at in James 1 the reality of trials and how God uses those trials to change our character, to conform us to the image of Christ, especially to humble us so that we will learn to depend more upon God rather than the securities of life. We saw last week that we can depend upon God to guide us, that if any of us lack wisdom, we can ask of God, and in the midst of trial, he will generously give us wisdom so we know how to live and how to respond in the midst of the trials of life. This morning, let me read again our text and then move on to the question of what is faith? How do we ask for wisdom? We know we need to ask for wisdom, but how do we ask for wisdom? Listen again to our text in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I want to talk this morning about how we ask for wisdom. James says, but let him ask in faith. And I want to talk about three things this morning. The explanation of faith, the effects of faith, and then the equality of faith. What is faith? What does God want from me in the midst of my trials? Often in the midst of our trials, we may cry out, God, what do you want from me? And God's answer always is faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Everything begins with our belief in who God is and our belief that his word is true. As the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to believe so to please God. For he that comes to God must believe, number one, that he is, and number two, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is simply an unwavering dependence upon God and his word. Faith is not superstition. There's no magic about faith. As a matter of fact, faith is not the strength of of how you believe. For many people, they, they think that if I believe something strong enough, then I can make it a reality. That is pretty much the substance of what we call the word of faith movement and much of what is in uh, the prosperity gospel uh, today and in some of Pentecostalism today that if I believe something strongly enough, that my faith can make it a reality. But when we come to the Word of God, faith is always defined in the context of Scripture. Faith always has an object of faith. In the Bible, the object of faith is God, His person, as he has revealed himself in scripture, and his words as he has given, the, given them to us in scripture. Faith always has an object. You say, well, I really believe this is going to happen. Well, what is the object of that faith? Is it your dream that you had? Is it your imagination that you have? Is it the desires of your heart that are very compelling? Is it a so-called word of prophecy that somebody got up and said, 
this and this and this is going to happen to you and you believe it? Well, your faith is only as good as the object of that faith. And if your faith is your imagination or your desires or the words of some human being, then that faith is always fallible and often it leads to disappointment and despair. But biblical faith has God as its, as its object. You read Hebrews chapter 11, and it's by faith Abraham did this, and by faith Moses did this, and by faith Samson did this, and their faith was always a response to the word of God. Faith is unwavering dependence upon God and his word. It's important before you think about faith that you first think about the object of your faith. Who will I believe? Whose words will I stake my life on? And again, biblical faith is unwavering dependence upon God and his word. When James goes on to talk about faith, let him ask in faith, he really defines it in more of a negative way. Let him ask in faith, he says, with no doubting. That is, you need faith that is not conflicted. You need faith that is firm, that is single-minded. It's not conflicted. It's the kind of faith you have when you first come to Christ. It's a single faith. There's no doubt. I'm coming to God to save me through Jesus Christ because that's his promise and I believe that promise. I'm not coming to God and saying, God, save me, but on the side here, just in case you're not able to save me and just in case your promise isn't really reliable, I'm going to rely on my personal goodness and have faith that maybe if you don't save me, that my own goodness can save me. No, that's not saving faith. And that's not living faith. That's not the faith that sustains us day by day. It is a faith that unwaveringly looks without any doubt to the promise of God. And in this context, James is saying you're in trial. Multiple trials have come your way. And God's working through those trials to conform you to the image of Christ. And if you lack wisdom, ask of God. He'll give it to you. But if you're going to ask God for wisdom, you have to do it without doubting. You have to believe God's promise that he will give you the wisdom that you need in the midst of your trials in life. The Greek word that's translated as doubt or wavering in some translations, it simply is a word that means that you are at odds with yourself. You're fighting yourself. You're really not sure about whether you can believe God and trust God. 
But if you will have biblical faith, he says you will do it without doubting. He goes on to say, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's a picture of the lack of direction, the lack of momentum, of movement forward in life. It's a picture of instability, of insecurity. It's a picture of the lack of peace in life. The one who doubts is like my friend Sal once described himself as a non-believer. He said, John, my life is like, he says, I'm like a cork, you know, a little cork that you might take out of a wine bottle. And I'm like a cork that is tossed in the middle of an ocean in the midst of a storm. And I am just bounced around and blown around. And this is my life without Jesus Christ. And James says, this is your life without faith in God. You're back and forth. You're driven with every, as Paul says, every wind of doctrine. Every cunningness and deceitfulness of man that comes your way. You need faith, the kind of faith that brings you to rest, that brings you to peace. And by the way, we have gauges in our life that tell us whether or not we are trusting God and believing God. It's like driving along in your car and that, that yellow light goes on and you see an oil can. It's just telling you, you know, you've gone below that critical line. You need to add oil. And when you're moving along in life and your heart is unsettled and your mind is agitated and you are not at peace, James would say it's because you are not going to God in single-hearted dependence upon Him and His Word. Because Isaiah tells us God will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Oh, put it this way. Don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds. He goes on to tell us, that true faith is purely undivided in its commitment to God. True faith finds complete security in Christ alone. He says that the man without faith is a double-minded man. Literally, the Greek says he is a two-souled man. He's a man with two appetites, with two desires. 
that are battling with, 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 with each other and neither one is actually controlling them. He's a two-souled man. And we know what this like, what this is like, because in some sense, all of us have the capacity to be two-souled. We can be driven, struggling between the flesh and the spirit, between the world's uh, desires and the word's desires. We can struggle between the advice of men and the dictates of God. We can struggle between uh, the culture of the city and the culture that the Spirit of God wants to develop uh, uh, among us. We can struggle between being filled with anger at something or being filled with love even toward our enemies. We can struggle with, with, with pride rather than being filled with humility. He says the man without faith is a two-souled man. He uses the same word later on in James chapter 4 when he's talking about our need to humble ourselves before God. And in James 4, 8, he says, purify your hearts, you two-souled, you double-minded people. Purify your hearts. Bring your hearts to a pure, focused, centered love and affection for God alone. Let me say that has perhaps been one of the biggest challenges during COVID-19 for many of us. And now with the riots and the protests and it is so easy for all of us to be captured by the, the, the moment that we were in, the circumstances that we are in and our thoughts go there, our, 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 our time goes into watching the news and trying to figure it out and, and We're not drawn closer to Christ. If all that I've learned about COVID-19 and racism has not brought me close to Christ, if it has not humbled me, if it has not caused me to love people, even my enemies, if it has not given me a desire to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, then I've been a two-souled man. I've been captured by two things. I was reading 1 Peter chapter 2, which I think is a text that most people during this time, especially in the time of protesting and riots, most people would not want to think about this text. But it's a text that calls us not to be consumed with our suffering, not to be consumed with our injustices, not to be consumed with our oppression, not to be consumed with our pain, but be consumed 
with the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Peter says this is a gracious thing. When being mindful of God. Not too sold. But being mindful of God. One endures suffering. While suffering unjustly. Wait a minute. I want justice. Now God says. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God. One endures sorrow. While suffering. He goes on to say. For what credit is it when. You sin and are beaten for it, and you endure. What credit? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You say, well, that's not right. God says it's good if you endure injustices in life and don't respond with evil. He goes on to say, because to this, what I'm talking about, to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was Deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. I read that text and I think about how do I respond to the evil in the world? How do I respond to the evil that might touch my life? Am I becoming more like Jesus Christ? Or am I too sold? Am I captured by the drives and the opinions and the narratives of the world that I live in? Or am I captured by the mind being mindful of God? That God is using even our pain, our suffering, our injustices. I mean, who was treated more unjustly than Jesus? I mean, he was a second-class citizen in a Roman Empire, if that. If he had been a Roman, he wouldn't have been crucified. Very rare for a Roman citizen to be crucified, but he was a Jew. And how did he take that? When he suffered, he did not 
threatened. But he committed himself to him that judges righteously. For God, there's something more important than my relief from, from suffering. For God, what is more important is his glory in the midst of my suffering. And am I glorifying him? Am I exhibiting the character of Jesus Christ in the midst of my suffering? Am I approaching what's happening to me in the character of Christ? But he also talks about the effects of wavering faith. He not only explains what it is and what it isn't. He talks about the effects of wavering faith and he describes it in a couple of ways. For one, he simply says, wavering faith, a double-minded man, a two-souled man, receives nothing from God. Let not that man think he will receive anything from God. In some ways, it's a simple prescription for spiritual poverty. If you want nothing from God, then don't come to him with single-minded, undivided faith in his person and his word. Keep a little trust in yourself. Keep a little reliance on your own resources. Think a little bit about your own goodness and how much you deserve something in life. And you will live in spiritual poverty. But especially if you want wisdom in the midst of trial. Let them ask in faith. Nothing wavering. Otherwise, we receive nothing from the Lord. You might say, well, I've, I've prayed and I know God's word, and I've, 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 I've claimed his promise, and God has not intervened in my life. Well, I can always tell you the problem is never with God's truthfulness. Either you misunderstand God's word, or you're impatient about God's fulfillment of his promise. Or you really don't believe with a single-minded faith in God. He goes on to say that a wavering faith destabilizes your entire life. He says that man with Unstable faith, that double-minded, two-souled man, that man is unstable in all of his ways because he doesn't trust God. It's not just affecting him in that immediate circumstance in life. It affects every single area of your life because if you don't have God's wisdom, 
If you don't have faith to believe that God will keep his word and give you the guidance and instruction that you need in life, then you won't have it for any part of life. And we don't need it just in trials. We need it in all of life. We need wisdom all the time. We need God to direct us through his word so that we can live a life that is honoring to him in, in, in every way in life. Because we have wavering faith, we have men who are vacillating in their leadership. Men who are weak in their love and sacrifice for their wives because they're not seeking God to guide them. Even if they're in a difficult spot, they're not seeking God to guide them, to give them wisdom and understanding so that they can live in a difficult circumstance. He is unstable in all of his ways. Jesus put it another way, using the illustration of building a house. Jesus said, everyone that hears my words, and he does them, he is like a man who builds his house on a rock. And the rain descends, and the floods come, and they beat upon the house, and it does not fall because it's founded on a rock. But every man who hears my words and does not do them because he does not believe them, he is like a man who builds his house upon the sand and the rain descends and the floods come and they beat upon the house and the house falls because it was founded on the sand. God only wants one thing from me. I have nothing else really to give him. And that's faith. The final verses of the text that I read this morning talk about the equality of faith. I'll call it the gospel equality of faith. We hear a lot about the, the, the cry for equal rights equal treatment. But truly the only place you will find equality in this world is when people are kneeling at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is where rich and poor, black and white, young and old, men and women come together in humility. He says to those who are poor, it's your faith in God, your belief in God. It's your coming to the gospel that, that elevates you out of that. It brings you into relationship with the living God. And for those of you that are rich, when you come to see your need of faith, your riches, your resources, your education, your money, your 
cannot help you. Faith will bring the lowly in touch with God by lifting them above any deficiency they have in life. You know, the cry of the poor might be, well, I don't have anything. And God says, I want faith. You can have faith regardless of your poverty. And he says to the rich man who says, but I, I have everything. God says, but none of that has anything to do with faith. Faith alone is what brings people together when we kneel together at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. If the rich man depends on his riches, then James says they'll all pass away like the grass, like the flower. It's going to be gone. And if the poor man keeps thinking about his own deficiencies and inabilities, he will never get anywhere in life. It's when we come to faith. As someone took the word faith and made the, what we call an acrostic, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. And there, at the foot of the cross, where people have been humble, where their deficiencies are no longer an excuse, where their resources are no longer a stumbling block, but where they are humble to say, God is God and his word is true and I believe it. That puts us all on equal ground. And if you're not there this morning, I pray that you will. If you're suffering, I pray that your suffering would cease, but I pray more than just your suffering would cease. I pray that you would be like Jesus in your suffering. And that if your suffering never ceases, you will pursue being like Jesus Christ in those difficult times of life. If any of you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all men liberally and does not upbraid people and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For he that doubts is like the wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed, let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It's as simple as Paul put it in Romans chapter 10. 
Acts chapter 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You come with single-hearted faith, believing that God can save you because of the work of Christ. You will be saved. And then Paul says in Colossians 2, as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, so walk in him. That same single-hearted dependence upon God and his word is what sustains us through life. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, if there is one person in the hearing of my voice this morning that does not know what it is to call on your name and to be rescued, to be saved, to be forgiven, to be given life eternal, then I pray that right now, right where they sit this morning, they would cry out that simple prayer of the publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, for those of us that confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, Forgive us for our wandering hearts, for our doubts, for our adoption of worldly methods to get what we want in life. Forgive us for, for being distracted from the person and the glory of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for not being willing to suffer. Forgive us for not loving our enemies. Forgive us for revenge. Forgive us for not believing that you are the God of justice. And that we can leave our pain and our suffering in your hands. Mold us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Help us to yield to the call to follow his example and to commit ourselves to you, the righteous judge who judges righteously. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we have come to you, the shepherd of our souls. We have come to you, the bishop, the overseer, the one who watches over our lives. Thank you that we can trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.